I'd like to do a little time travel with you tonight. We just had uh, New Year's and then and I just had a birthday. I've been thinking about time quite a bit. You know what time it is? It's 8.14. Do you know how arbitrary that is? It means nothing. When it reaches 8.15, it will mean something. It will mean it's not 8.14 any longer. What is this strange dimension that we live in? The simplest uh, definition of time is it's what keeps everything from happening at once. (laughs) But, you know, as a meditator, you probably are uh, used to time traveling already, Uh, which is what you do most of the time when you're meditating. And in fact, the neuroscientists have... uh, concluded that that is the default position of the human brain and nervous system is to time travel. If there's nothing pressing, if there's nothing that must be taken care of right now, we tend to go off into the future, planning, figuring out things, or going into the past, going over what we've done and the mistakes we made and we shouldn't do them again and It's all about trying to um, orient ourselves to this strange phenomena of time. We're all time travelers. But tonight I want to do a a more deliberate time travel where we investigate this phenomena that uh, we're living in and um, give our lives some perspective. Because we, we, we tend, to, as uh, individuals, to focus on our particular story, uh, this particular moment. Uh, you know, as a meditator, you're told to be here now, right? But where did that moment go? You know, where did, where did that moment go? Where did that moment go this morning when you were having breakfast, you know, the first sip of something you took, that moment, where, where is it? Where's the moment you rehearsed for? You're rehearsing for this tonight while you were meditating. You, I bet you every one of you was rehearsing a moment that's not yet happened. But I want to do some more deliberate time travel in the sense of going back through history, biology, cosmology, geology, and give some perspective to this moment that we find ourselves in. So it, it's not so fraught as, uh, you know, as an individual story that has this monumental significance. Of course it does to us, but in the expanse of time, it is effervescent, it is moment, it's a bubble. As, as the Buddha said, thus shall ye view the world, a, bu- a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. It's just, 
And time travel, uh, uh, another purpose of this time travel is to give perspective on our lives in the sense that the styles of clothing that you wear, the way you think about yourself, um, your habits, what you think will make you happy, all are dependent on your being alive at this moment, in this culture, at this time. And it's very, it's, it's very revealing. We don't, you know, we don't do meditation practice kind of in a vacuum. It's in a context. I mean, I sometimes think if, if I'd have been born 30 years earlier, I, I never would have heard of the Dharma. If I'd have lived 500 years ago, I, probably my whole life would have been focused on survival, feeding myself and my children, if I had any, and uh, having no leisure to sit around and think about who I am. <laughs> Time travel teaches us about dukkha, anicca, impermanence, anatta. We see if we investigate this moment and the, the time, the dimension of time, we see that this is a, a process. We're part of this river of existence. There's no stopping it. You can't stop time. You can't hold on to this moment because it's gone. All you can do is kind of let go into the river, you know. So uh, I want to start time traveling uh, on New Year's Eve, 23 days ago. That's where we celebrated the Earth, the fact that the Earth had gone all the way around the sun. And where did it get us? <laughs> right back where we started, of course. But that's a, that's a totally arbitrary uh, distinction and a definition of time where we mark off time in blocks. It's different. Years are different on other planets, you know. Uh, they found a planet, Gliese 581g, that's the name of the planet, that they think could support life. And uh, it's not far from us. And uh, It goes around its sun every 37 days. So the years just go whizzing by. <laughs> If I lived on Gliese 581G, I'd be like 700 years old. And uh, I like the idea that uh, they said that Gliese 581G is about a couple dozen light years from the Earth. So if there are beings living on Gliese 581G, they're just about to watch their first episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> and not in reruns. But not only does the year have a cycle, but uh, the Earth ha has this cycle around the sun, and we call it a year. The solar system has a cycle. We are circling through the Milky Way galaxy, and it takes uh, our sun and our solar system 200 million years to go all the way around and through the galaxy. We're kind of, you know, on the edge of it. and. Uh, so the Earth is actually about, our solar system, the Sun and the Earth, are actually about 
25 galactic years old is all. Still young. I love this, this group of facts because, and I played with it a little bit during the guided meditation, but we're now spinning around on our axis, on the axis of the earth at about a thousand miles an hour. We are spinning in our orbit around the sun at about 66,000 miles an hour. Our solar system is spinning through the galaxy uh, at something like a half a million miles an hour. And the entire galaxy is soaring toward a galaxy cluster in space that is the scientists call the Great Attractor at about another half a million miles an hour. And then everything attracted to the Great Attractor is soaring towards another uh, cluster of galaxies in interstellar space known as the Shapley Attractor. <laughs> we are just soaring, soaring on this little rock, <clears throat> moving so fast. It's so phenomenal that, to think that that's going on, you know? Can you feel any space wind, you know? It's like <laughs> It seems like we're standing still. And for most of our history, we believed it. Everything went around us. Boy, is that changing. Um, so where are we now in time? The year 2012 AD. That's, of course, if you follow the Christian calendar. Some of us are Jews and Buddhists and Muslims, Hindus. I don't think we should all have to follow that calendar. There should be separation of church and date, I think. I mean, Jews are in the, in the year 5772. We were here first. And, and we're having another decade of the 70s, yes. Yeah, wow, it's fun, huh? But my sense of it is a calendar is an arbitrary demarcation of time. So why don't we bring all humanity together under one calendar? I figure we could start counting from the, from the beginning of our species, uh, which would make this around the year 200,000 or so. It would be a little hard to write on your checks, but it would give us more of a sense of where we're coming from. I mean, 2012 is not very long time. Of course, uh, if we're all part of this Big Bang universe, then this is the year 13.7 billion ABB. <laughs> That's right, uh, after the Big Bang, which took place, which took place, by the way, 13.7 billion years ago today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, too. 13.7 billion years ago. 
But Hindus and Buddhists and Taoists, many, many of the people of the world believe that this is not just a single event, this universe, that there are many, many universes, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Uh, the Dalai Lama was once asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. And he said, hmm, oh, yes, but bang, 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 many bangs, <laughs> many, many universes. The, the Hindus say their creator deity Brahma, every time he blinks his eyes shut, a universe is destroyed. Every time he opens his eyes again, another universe is created. You can try it for yourself. It actually works. It's amazing. Anyway, with all those universes, you know, the Hindus and the Buddhists, they don't know what the hell time it is. And I think that's why they invented the here and now. Just keep it simple. So, where, where are we now? We're, we're, you know, we're, I don't know how many of you know this, but we're in a new geological epoch. Among scientists, there's now talk that uh, the Holocene is over, and we are in a new era, era called the Anthropocene. It means that humans have, are leaving a stratigraphic signal detectable through thousands of years, for, for thousands of years from now, in ice cores and sedimentary rocks. There's a case that the Anthropocene begins with the Industrial Revolution around 1800, when we began to exert our most profound impact on the world by altering the carbon content of the atmosphere. We are the only species that we know of to have defined a geological period by our activity, something usually performed by major glaciations, mass extinctions, and the colossal impact of objects from outer space. Congratulations. <laughs> now we have a new geographic epoch named for us. Let me read you this. All parts of the earth are trampled and full of commerce. Fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated. Swamps are drained. Today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere are residences, peoples, governments, life. And this above all proves humans' drastic growth. We so clog the universe, it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them. And nature fails us. That was written by the Roman, Roman historian Tyrullian in 150 AD. <laughs> Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, you know? The more things change. So let's just go back a hundred years. 
get some real perspective on our lives. A little over a hundred years, not far. Henry Ford built his first car in 1893. Now there's something like two billion or one, one to two billion cars. The Wright brothers made their first airplane for flight in 1903. 1900 was the first transmission of human speech via radio waves. 1900, Max Planck first formulated the quantum theory, which led to the complete transformation of our understanding of reality. 1900, Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams. In 1900, only one and a half billion people lived on Earth. How much of our confusion is related to this, these unprecedented changes in humans uh, inventing these amazing new tools, ways of moving around, communication, ways of feeding ourselves, allowing populations to explode. 100 years ago, no cars, no airplanes, no radio, no television, no computers, no painkillers, no antibiotics, no birth control, no Ziploc bags, no plastic. A hundred years ago, almost nobody believed in rock and roll. <laughs> Imagine. Just a hundred years ago, most people lived uh, as peasants. Maybe a little, between a hundred, two hundred years ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. Uh, they didn't, uh, if you had gone up to them, or to a desert nomad, or uh, you know, or medieval peasant, and said, "What what do you want to do with your life?" <laughs> they wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> because with all of our all of the changes that have brought brought about, uh, you know, this civilization, modern civilization, there always comes a price. And part of the price is this extreme sense of, of the individual. I think it's uh, one of the curses that we have to face as a civilization. It's interesting to note, it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The, the, the self itself has a history. This is... Uh, Rollo May, a psychologist and a historian from the way back in the 1900s. Uh, <laughs> I've been saying that lately. I find it very funny. Oh, yeah, well, I remember back in the 1900s. You know, it's. <laughs> this is Rollo May. Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Evidence from uh, early Greek literature would indicate the Greeks thought all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. That they, they weren't independently creating the thoughts in their heads. And we would think of that as, you know, really schizophrenic. And, uh, of course, now we believe that all the thoughts in our head 
heads are ours, which is its own brand of uh, <laughs> delusion. Uh, this, this idea, you know, of uh, the anthropologists used to have a participation mystique that people had much more of a sense of belonging to big projects, big movements, belonging to nature or the, you know, a tribe. Uh, this extreme individualism that we experience in our time is, is a unique situation. And it's part of the reason why we're here. I think we are hungering to escape the onus of being by yourself, doing it on your own. It's all, it's all about you. It's all on your shoulders. Your destiny is yours. Nobody says, God willing. You know, it's, it's such an extreme self-focus. A lot of what we do in, in meditation is, is an attempt to alleviate some of that. Join, join the humans, you know, I mean, to shift our identity from this individual story that we're all so lost in and draw back into a bigger story and see ourselves as humans and as members of a species and as, as earthlings, you know, those, those are our primary identities and we've, we've lost touch with them, we're, we're out of touch with them. Another thing that we notice when we're looking at, you know, different eras and cultural trends and, and ideas is uh, that they don't last. One era evolves into another era and, and the mores change and the styles change and the ideas about self change. There's no place where you can stop the, the movement and, and rest, come to rest. Well, you can come to rest, but you can't stop the movement. You can come to rest in the movement. So uh, I want to go back now in biological history. I mean, human history is one thing, but biological history, a great teacher of anatta, of, of no self. Because if you look at evolution, biological evolution, you see this long stream of beings shifting and sh shape changing uh, as they dance with the natural elements and they keep growing new appendages and new ways of motion and, and new, new ways of feeding and appendages. And, you know, it's we're at a particular moment in this ongoing stre unfolding stream. And this body and this brain, we didn't choose it, did we? I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered, you know? <laughs> Would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like your uh, hunger and sex drive built in, or would you like them optional? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of love? No, you just get this, this is the body you get, you know? Vertebrates, all of us. This is a geologist, Colin Tudge. 
I suggest that once you become aware of the idea of evolution, once you begin to feel that things change through time, then your perception of everything around you is enhanced. Another dimension is added to your view of the world. That is the fourth dimension, time. You begin to perceive that an animal or a plant and the lineage to which it belongs and the planet itself are like a flame, not so much a thing as a performance, always becoming something else, and that each of us and our species as a whole are part of the overall unfolding. Someplace back in our history, we, we got so arrogant, we humans, we thought the whole thing is made just for you. You were specially made and put down here to run the whole show, and that's the story we've been living with for, for centuries. But it's really hard to hold on to that story anymore. Especially when we're seeing, we're finding millions, billions of planets in our galaxy alone. Thousands of them that can support life. And the latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies, not solar systems, 100 to 200 billion galaxies. There's probably life everywhere out there. I think that is really exciting and great news because it takes the pressure off of us. <laughs> we no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. It's not just about us. Yeah, it's fabulous. It's, it's, it's fabulous. And seeing ourselves in time, that you know, the average uh, mammalian species lives for about four million years, they say. Average life of a mammalian species. I've been writing an article for uh, the next Inquiring Mind on uh, the, the title of the article is Ancestors of Awakening. I want to read you just a couple paragraphs. Reflecting on the scientific story of evolution, what is revealed to us is a lineage of bodhisattvas stretching back millions of years through epochs of geological time. We owe our existence to the struggles and sacrifice of uncountable numbers of organisms Creatures who had to shapeshift to the ever-changing demands of natural forces. Beings who suffered horribly through atmospheric upheavals, ice ages, comets crashing into earth, continents colliding, volcanoes erupting, floods, bacterial plagues. It's the determination to live on the part of all those beings that has brought us to this moment of semi-awakened consciousness. So you go back three and a half billion years, the first living being. The uh, scientists have given him or her a name, Luca. Last universal common ancestor. Every living being that has ever lived on the planet can trace their lineage back to Luca. Now I had this fantasy of Luca just <laughs> floating around on the old seas, you know, this little single-celled being little membrane, you know, just kind of float. And happier than, as happy as anyone could be at the time, because there was no one to compare themselves, compare herself to. But being all alone, she got really lonely. I give her a female gender. She got really lonely, and finally she figured out she could pull her DNA evenly across her body and then 
squeeze real hard, kind of sucking in, and split. She split. And then she started having twice as much fun because she, there was someone to play with, you know, and say, look at the sunset, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and then Luca, so Luca fell in love with Luca, right? A case of, of narcissism. But actually, I think it's a great spiritual message that we should love all other beings as ourselves because it, that is the case. Uh, we are made up of all the other beings that have ever, ever lived. Then the, uh, the, other be the other species that I give tribute to in this piece are, are the frogs, the amphibians, actually. The first ones who kind of learned how to hold on to the land, you know, crawled up out of the oceans. And what a job that must have been, you know? I mean, you, you, your lungs are taking oxygen mostly from the water. You got to gulp the air, and the, and the air is a lot less buoyant than the water, so you got to kind of slog through the, you know, that was a huge step for uh, vertebrates to come up on the land from the sea. So, and the frogs really deserve our attention right now, demand our attention right now because they're in big trouble. There, some scientists say we're, we're about to lose the entire class of amphibians. It would be equivalent to the, the, the wiping out of the dinosaurs if, if, if it continues. Um, so, so many species belong in our circle of reverence, the ancestors of awakening. We could bow low to the gazillions of cyanobacteria that turned the air into an oxygen-rich oxygen mixture, allowing for the enormous complexity of living matter. Big bows to the marine worms who invented the spine. Say it loud, I'm a vertebrate and I'm proud. <laughs> a later generation of worms who plowed and prepared the soil with nitrogen for the well-being of the plant kingdom. Also deep bows to that group of pre-human primates who struggled to learn cooperation and the language to make it work. The ones who felt the first mirror neurons blinking on the seeds of what would later become love. And here's to those really great apes who may have looked into the reflecting water of a lake perhaps and for the first time saw themselves and for the first time knew of their own life and death and began wondering about the mysteries of existence. Many praises to those nameless ones who not so long ago must have experienced the great confusion that we still feel today when we suddenly awaken to our existence. The story of evolution, uh, it is a, a tale of time passing on this tiny little rock hurling through space. We could go back in cosmology four or five billion years ago when our solar system was forming. Thich Nhat Hanh uh, said once, once I was a rock, once I was a cloud, and once I was a rock. This is not poetry. This is science. Oh, this is an image I love. A trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, 
the universe was six feet in diameter. It, it, it began expanding very rapidly right after that, but like a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, something like that. Six feet in diameter. That's a universe you can get your mind around, you know? It's like, <laughs> take it home, put it in a corner. And, and considering, you know, they're now measuring things in, in such, such small changes of things, time passing. Uh, they started measuring things in millionths of a trillionth of a second. This is a subatomic world. And it was so unique and so far from ordinary time that they named, gave it a name. They called it attoseconds. Then they started measuring things in billionths of a trillionth of a second, and they called it a zeptosecond. <laughs> and then they started measuring, measuring changes in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, and they called it a yoctosecond. Atto, zepto, and yocto. <laughs> Now, doesn't that sound like a Marx Brothers routine? I think the physicists, they're just having a great time. And, you know, they see things are happening so fast, you know, that it, it's, all, it's all a joke. A couple of other little things I wanted to... to to say before I close this. Yeah, just, you know, it's so impossible to sort of conceive of these millions and billions, these numbers. Somebody told me this was a good way, and I, I like it. A million seconds is 11 and a half days. A million seconds is 11 and a half days. A billion seconds is 33 years. And the national debt, forget it. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's an eternity, you know? One of the great uh, Buddhist uh, teachers of all time back in the 15th century, 16th century, uh, Zen Master Dogen, wrote a wonderful essay once called on, on Time, Time Being. And he said... Time unites us all. This moment of time is also the same moment in a distant galaxy. Everywhere, it's always right now. A moment of time contains the entire universe. Nothing can exist outside of this moment of time. I, I just love that, that sense of, you know, that this, we're, we're sharing this moment with the rest of the universe. It's all one thing. One thing happening. I read one, one scientist, one physicist saying, space is the corpse of time. <laughs> this is just fun. This is just fun here, all right? Uh, one more thing. Yes, the story of evolution. 
when, when we sit and meditate, I, I really try to emphasize forgiveness, no blame. You didn't order this brain. Uh, as a species, we're just a baby species. There were a hundred million generations of dinosaurs. There were 20, 30 million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 20, 30,000 generations of humans at the mo modern humans at the most. We just got these big brains. You know, we don't really know how to use them very well yet. They didn't come with an instruction manual. The Buddha, Lao Tzu, Socrates, 2,500 years old. That, that's uh, years ago. That's a blink of a blink of a, a second of time. It's, we're just awakening. We're just learning to develop uh, our attention and, and learn how to override the instincts that we're, we inherited from, you know, from evolution. We're learning actually how to break free of some of the karma that we inherited from the past. So you want to forgive yourself because you're not built to be mindful all the time. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're doing good. You're doing good. <laughs> forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Okay, one, one last little fun thing. I, I've been playing this game with friends uh, because, as I said at the beginning, I, I had a birthday recently, and oh, man, I'm old. I'm so old. This is the game. I'm so old, I remember when. I'm so old, I remember when the only people who had tattoos were in the Navy. <laughs> I'm so old, I remember when a woman was embarrassed if her bra strap was showing. <laughs> I'm so old, I remember when young men wore their pants around their waist. I'm so old, I remember when a million was a very big number. I'm so old, I remember when love was five feet of heaven in a ponytail. Aww. Few of you will remember that. Now, most of you didn't. Uh, yeah, some of you. I, I, see, I see who you are, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so old, I remember when awesome was far out. <laughs> I'm so old, I remember when, for entertainment, people used to drive aimlessly around in their cars. It was called going for a ride. That's one pleasure I wish we could bring back, but. I'm so old, I can barely remember when I could still remember. Okay. Well, um, let me close with a poem by Gary Snyder. Old Wood Rat's Stinky House. By the way, I, I'm, I, I hope you enjoyed our, our time travel this evening. And uh, yes, I, and um, 
see things in time. It, it's, a, it's really a, a wonderful practice to, to imagine that, you know, this, this is just, this is a river of, of life. This is a river of phenomena. Everything is in process. There is, there is no thingness. You know, the, the physicists found uh, matters like gravitationally trapped light. It's all a light show. And we just have this, this brief moment, you know, and uh, you got to love it. Old Woodrat's stinky house. Coyote and Earthmaker whirling about in the world winds found a meadowlark nest floating and drifting, stretched it to cover the waters and made us an earth. Us critters hanging out together something like two billion years. Ice Age has come 150 million years apart, last about 10 million, then warmer days return. A venerable desert wood rat's nest of twigs and shreds is a family house in use 8,000 years, and 4,000 years of written language equals the life of a bristlecone pine. A spoken language works for about five centuries, lifespan of a Douglas fir. Big floods, big fires every couple hundred years. A human life lasts 80, generation 20. Hot summers every eight or 10, four seasons every year. 28 days for the moon, day and night, the 24 hours. And a song might last four minutes, and a breath is a breath. Coyote says, you people, you should stay put here, study yourself, learn your place, and do good things. I'm moving on. <laughs> Let's sit for just a few moments together. If you want, you can visualize that little ball, that little planet. Uh, forget it. Let's uh, no. Uh, Sean Sean just told me that uh, you typically go to about nine fifteen and wondered if there was any Q and A, and so yeah, we can do a few. We can do a little discussion if you wish. If anybody has anything to add or uh, we could add on to the list of I remember when. <laughs> yeah, and you can add on to the list of I remember when. Absolutely, I'm so old. I remember when. Anybody? Uh, yes. Um, in relation to time, you got any thoughts on 2012? Do I have any thoughts on 2012? You mean whether the world's going to come to an end or not? Well, or the, the, not necessarily that, but the whole Mayan 2012. Well, if, if, if any of the uh, candidates that they're now touting, uh, <laughs> does, the world will come to an end in, in 2012. I had some predictions, but they're too, they're too uh, risque. I don't, not risque, they're just... Oh, here's a couple of predictions. In the year 2012, the European Union will announce that it will solve the Eurozone debt crisis by selling Belgium. 
here, here's, a, here's this, this you might appreciate. In, in the year 2012, the Occupy movement will decide to shut down business as usual in America by occupying all of the public restrooms. At great personal sacrifice, occupiers will sit for weeks at a time in the toilets of business and government buildings, restaurants and malls, making constant references to the stink of capitalism. All across the nation, the American people will be unable to relieve themselves as protesters put into place on every restroom door the sign, Occupied. <laughs> oh, one more. All right, one more. Follow the, my prediction number three. Following on the Supreme Court decision that corporations are people too, the U.S. Senate will begin debating a bill called the Defense of Mergers Act. <laughs> However, unlike the debate over the Defense of Marriage Act, conservatives and liberals will switch sides, with conservatives arguing that this is America and a corporation person can merge with any other corporation person they choose. In the year 2012, President Obama will announce that the United States is so deep in debt that in order to raise money, the nation will begin selling naming rights to anything anywhere within its borders, both natural and man-made. The corporations will immediately begin the bidding, leading to the creation of the Budweiser Mississippi, the Walmart Grand Canyon, and in Yellowstone National Park, the Viagra Old Faithful Geyser. The announcement of the new names will be made from the Microsoft Windows White House. <laughs> you asked what was going to happen in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, additions to the, uh, the timepiece? Corrections? Well, if not, let's just uh, sit together for a couple, couple minutes and then we'll go home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.